We are in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be completing a section, which is kind of silly to say that because the themes in Peter are just cycled again and again. We're going to see some of these very themes. We're going to talk about them in passages that are still to come, which we'll revisit that that concept um, in the context of another theme. Uh, But we're going to see those. Uh, We are still in this uh, aspect of suffering. That's really going to take us through the end of the chapter, but from a different perspective a little bit later on than what we've had since chapter uh, two, verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse 18. And so we come now to really wrapping up this section, uh, which has been focused in on the suffering of Christ, our association with that, particularly referencing our baptism as the identification that we have with Christ's death, burial, resurrection to newness of life. Uh, We've seen an example out of Noah and the ark of those that were preached to in the past who are now dead, but were preached to back then for a reason, uh, that uh, they're now in a prison waiting for their ultimate judgment. That brings us really to the conclusion of that concept. Uh, Again, it's not the end that he's going to talk about it, but uh, in this section that we're going to be looking at. So let's pick up in verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We talked about that last week, but we ended there. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So as we come to this passage, again, we're going to kind of work backwards because we really started out by answering this question earlier on, several weeks ago, what does it mean to preach to the dead? And I want to remind you what we're talking about. We're talking about preaching in the past to people who were alive in the past, who are now dead, some to everlasting judgment, some to everlasting life. Those who responded by faith to the preaching they heard back then, whether it be back in the days of Noah or just back in the early days of the church compared to the time now, they were, and everywhere in between, They had an opportunity to respond to preaching. Of course, we know that out of all the preaching of Noah, all he was able to successfully engage to enter the ark with him was his own family. So we have eight people on that giant boat. And so we find that uh, the access to preaching does not equal access to Christ. That you have to respond to that by faith, receiving that message in the days of Noah, There was no response, and we talked about that uh, who uh, in in chapter three. By the end of this, when we get to the end of this section, and we're kind of using this as bookends here of this section, we find that the judgment he's talking about is for those who did respond to the preaching. So we see that you have those that are held waiting for their judgment. in the negative, really, because they did not respond to the preaching, but the preaching was granted to them. 
And then we're going to find that here, Peter's going to talk about those that were taught, preached, and responded by faith, even though they are now dead in terms of their physical flesh. And we talked about the relationship of our flesh last week. That was our focus. So when Peter talks about being dead, he's talking about the flesh, but alive to God in the Spirit. And so for Peter, there was definitely two groups, those that rejected the message they heard and are now dead and in prison waiting for the eternal judgment, those who received the message that they heard and now have life in the Spirit waiting for them. And, and similarly, we in our baptism identify and declare that, that we were dead in trespasses and sin and now we are alive in the Spirit. That when we were spiritually dead and in our flesh dying, we heard the gospel and responded. And now we await a new body that will live forever and we have the Spirit of God within us and this new life is really our possession already. We simply haven't experienced it in its heavenly realm, in our new bodies. And so we need to understand these and let's not get the idea that somehow we should be praying for the dead, uh, somehow asking someone else to go preach to them in, in Hades uh, and things along that line that too many people have, have incorporated into their ideas of this passage. We have entire series. In fact, the ones that really emphasize that is a lot of the Mormons who would believe that you can get saved out of hell after this life. You can't get on the God track to become a deity like they believe they're going to be. Uh, but you can at least get it out of the place of suffering, of limbo, and get into a place uh, of paradise. And uh, so they, they have manipulated this passage to make that say that, and too many Christians have followed along with that. And that's really just not here at all. And so I want to preface this passage, even though we've gone to the last verse, uh, with that because we've already really dealt with that issue earlier on. We come now to really the question of the day. The question of the day is twofold. It's really one question, but it has obviously two directions, two decisions for you to make. And Peter presents it, uh, just as we saw last week, you can either do the will of God or the will of men. And now we simply project that concept of am I going to do the will of God or am I going to follow the will of men? That men tell me all of this, am I going to believe that and allow that to impact my decision making, what the quote-unquote wisdom of men is, or am I going to follow after the will of God and the wisdom of God? That is, who will I trust? Well, now we're going to take it the next logical step. Because who you trust is who you are going to allow to be your judge. And the question is, who do you want to be your judge? Men or God? Because if we subordinate ourselves, subordinate ourselves to the will of men, then we are rightly judged by men. That is, that if we reject the will of God and we are going to put our trust in men and in their so-called uh, wisdom in their science, uh, so-called, as Peter's going to refer to, in the concepts that they put forward, if we're going to trust that and not the truths of God's word, uh, and I'm not even talking about equal because they will never be equal. You'll always have to choose between those two. 
the idea, and here's, here's how it's presented. All truth is God's truth. I have heard that from a youth on, and it is, the way it's presented is error. What they're saying is that what men discover in the realms of science is God's truth because they've discovered it within creation. And therefore it is of equal value to reveal truth of God's word. That's what that statement means. That's what they mean by that statement. It might not be what you thought it meant, but that's what they mean by it. But we find that that never pans out, does it? Because man looks at all of this data they collect and they conclude that there is no God, that the world is, is eternally been, that matter is, is, is quant, unquantifiable, that uh, so time, energy, matter, all those things are eternal and God isn't. They come to those conclusions based upon their own wisdom and therefore the concept that somehow their truth has to now be dealt with with the Bible. Now we dealt with that in the 70s extensively and into the 80s somewhat uh, within conservative circles under the concept of do we believe in the biblical account of creation or do we believe in science's account? And we tried so many, me and men were trying to meld these two uh, in, including some who produced their own uh, Bibles, uh, or had their names on it, so, and they would propose these theories, and you know them as the day-age theory, the gap theory, things like that, to try to bring, be, and why were they doing that? Because all truth is God's truth. And so we have to subordinate what we obviously read in God's word, that morning and evening was a day, to the quote-unquote wisdom of men looking at the data, quote, the, their supposed data, they don't ever falsify data, do they? <clears throat> to accommodate their desire to ignore the fact that there is a God and to reject biblical truth. And we forget that that is their perspective. And Peter brings this out very powerfully and said, listen, there are, there's two choices here. You either follow after the wisdom of men, in which case you will be uh, that... The, you're going to be judged with them. They will be your place of judgment, or you'll follow after the wisdom of God, the will of God, and place yourself under his righteous judgment. And you cannot have it both ways, is the ticket here. You cannot have that. And so here we have, and, and we begin with men. Men are going to look at the life of a follower of Christ, and they're going to come to a conclusion. You're strange. That's in verse 4. They think it's strange. Why? Because you don't enjoy the things that the world enjoys. You don't follow after their stuff. And listen to those at the end of verse 3. You walk, that is your lifestyle, is lewd, lustful, drunken, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You thought all those things were just modern things. They aren't. They've been around, at least since the flood. And that first drinking party after the flood didn't end so good, did it? It ended up with one-third of humanity cursed. One of three sons cursed. After that drinking party. And so when we look at this, we say, oh, well, you know, everything in moderation, it's okay. And 
Peter says, no, it should be very obvious that this is what you were. Now it's time to be something very different. In fact, so different that people are going to come to you and say, you are strange. What is wrong with you? And we're not talking about people that never knew you before. We're talking about your family, your friends who did know you before when you were a follower of the will of men, when you did go after the lust of the flesh, when you did participate in all these things. And they're going to say, what happened to you? You used to be so much fun. You used to participate with us in all of these practices. And now you're confronted with a choice. Who is your judge? Are you concerned that they think you're strange? Are you going to try to tone it down? Because that's the way of this world. That's the way of Christianity in this age, in these days, is, well, tone down your Christianity. And by the way, I'm not talking about the last five years or anything like that. Um, When I was very young as a pastor, (laughs) that was a long time ago, um, Wow, that was a long time ago. Uh, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, 32 years ago. Um, Starting a church at Maria Rancho, took a group of young people to camp in Arizona and sat there for a retreat, youth retreat. It wasn't a whole camp, just a youth retreat for a weekend. And I were engaging with these people. And of course, you know, I'm young. I mean, I'm in my 20s still. Was I still in my 20s? I was in my 20s. So I was young. And I was idealistic, and now I'm old and idealistic. I still think people should live the scriptures. That hasn't changed. Just my age has changed. And I'm engaged these young people. I says, well, how are you any different? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how you reach the lost people, by being different. You have to be like them to reach them. Or they won't ever, we won't ever get an audience for our message. It's like, where is that in the Bible? Oh, no, it just makes sense. And so all the way back there, 31 years ago, 30 years ago, was already being, being taught and being pressed among our young people who are now the middle-aged parents. Okay, they were teenagers back then, 10 years younger than me, so now they're in their 40s, and they're wondering what happened. Well, I'll tell you what happened. You compromised yourself when you were a teenager when you said you have to be like the world to reach the world. And the Bible says, if you want to reach the world, you're going to be completely different than the world. So they come to you and say things like, you are a weirdo. And they say, why are you so different? But you see, we don't want to be pointed out as a weirdo. We don't want to be identified as that strange person. We want to fit in. We want to just just kind of don't upset anyone's apple cart. We want to fit in. We want to get along. We want everyone, we want everything calm around us. We don't want to stick out like the sore thumb. We don't want to be that one that everyone turns to and says, why are you like the rest of us? In many respects, most of us are just like middle schoolers. More worried about what, it, what, what other kids think about us than what is right and wrong, than what the teachers or their parents, they don't think about what any of those important people in their life think about them. They only think about what other middle schoolers think of them. And the sad thing is, is all the other middle schoolers only th- worry about what the other middle schoolers think of them. And it's, and it's a mess. They're all full of that fear. 
And now, and so we are taught, those of us who had strong parents, strong Christian homes, churches, taught don't bend to peer pressure. Right? How many of you were taught that? Do not bend to peer pressure. Yeah. We were taught that. What happened? What is happening? What has happened to the church? We bend to peer pressure. Because men say one thing, God says another thing. Now you have a choice. But the choice doesn't matter whose will you're going to do. It's not simply that. It's who will be your judge. And so here comes these men thinking that they are your judge, but we know that they really aren't our judge because we know the judge of the judge. We know the judge of all the earth. And we are more concerned about him than these lesser judges. Now, let's talk about judgeship a little bit, shall we? So, and you're gonna, let's say you're going to take up a case and you're going to um, go to court. And, and you, you always start, you never start off in the Supreme Court. Did you ever notice that? Does anybody start in the Supreme Court? Very, very, very rarely. Okay, there's one case in the last year that should have gone directly to the Supreme Court because it's of natural, national interest. And the Supreme Court backed out. Doesn't matter whether liberal or conservative judges, they just don't want to do their job. But normally you start off in a lesser court. What happens in that lesser court? Well, the judge makes a ruling. And what's the first thing the lawyers say they're leaving the courtroom? We will appeal. What does that mean? This judge isn't the end of all. And even they go to the next level of judges, and that's not even the end of it all. And then there's a third level of judges. Now you're getting up a little higher, but you're still not at the end of it all. And you have these appeals to higher and higher authorities. What happens if one of those judges overturns the lesser judge? Which authority holds? The higher judge or court. Till we get to the Supreme Court, which is a horrible misnomer because there's only one Supreme Court and it's in heaven. The Supreme Court of all. So we're sitting here worried about this, this municipal judge whose authority doesn't go much farther than his own courtroom. Because immediately above him is another judge that can overrule him at any time. And so, but we're sitting here worried about that. And letting that dictate things to us because we don't want that judge to say, guilty. Even though, in our heart of hearts, we know that the supreme judge of all the earth will say, not guilty. We know it will be overturned. Because this judge over here is the only true and fair, righteous, holy judge who cannot be bought off, will not shirk that responsibility, and is always fair. Period. And so we come into this scenario that he paints out here, and he says, okay, you have men coming to you and saying, well, you're strange. Why don't you go to the parties with us? Why don't you do this with us? Why don't you do this like the rest of us? Why are you different? And they might even make your life miserable for being different. That's what the whole passage is. The whole, that's the major theme of Peter. One of the three major themes is endure suffering. So they're going to make it. And look 
what they're going to do with you. When they look at you and say you're strange, what's the next thing they're going to do? They're going to speak evil of you at the end of that verse. Now they're going to target you as being in the wrong. Because you're not the majority, you must be wrong. That's the American way, isn't it? Well, that's the democratic way. It's not necessarily the republic of the United States' way, technically. But we are a democratic republic. And so the majority must be always right. And therefore, we point the finger at you. You're the strange one. You're the minority. You are wrong. And they will start speaking evil of you. They will begin to identify you as a person that is not deserving of fair treatment, a person is not deserving to be heard, a person who is not deserving of life. And yes, it gets to that point. That's been Peter's objective. That's the end result. And so they will put that declaration, that judgment upon you. You are not worthy of life because you're not like me. You're not worthy of liberty, of freedom, of a job, because you won't agree with the majority. We are the majority, you're the strange one, and you have your issues, and those issues make you the evil one. And if you don't think that's judgment, verse 6 makes it very clear uh, that they are being judged according to men in the flesh. So they're going to put a judgment upon us. You're not worthy of life. You're not worthy of your liberty. You're not worthy of your job. And they're going to put that on you and say, that's because you're strange, because you won't follow the will of men. You won't follow the wisdom of this age. You won't follow science, because that's the word that Peter uses, the, uh, falsely called science of knowledge. This just means knowledge. We know things. And I always laugh when they tell me that. Oh, you don't know what I know. And I'm like, uh, you'd be surprised. And that's not just in the area of science. It's also in the area of theology. I've had people come to me, you don't know. I was like, no, that's not the problem. I was taught your position at college and in seminary. And I've read lots of books on your position. The problem is you don't know what I believe. You've put a title on yourself, so I know what you believe. But you just don't know what I believe. And so when someone comes to me and says, well, you don't know the science. And I'm like, oh, uh, you're probably mistaken about that because you're making an assumption that you know how much I don't know. And I say, well, but what about this, 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 this? And I can go through the science with anybody. And challenge it, because that's what science is. The scientific method is all about challenge. That is the scientific method. Challenge everything. That is not the modern concept of science that is, they use this word settled. There's no such thing as settled science. Did you know that? That is, that is the opposite of everything we are taught growing up. As a chemistry major in, seminary, in, in college, uh, 
No, science has never settled. You know there was settled science back in the day when they were bloodletting people to get rid of their fevers? That was settled science. Did you know there was settled science that we fumigate children with DDT? That was settled science. It won't hurt them. Just get rid of all their bugs. That was all settled science back then. The doctor said so. So all along history, we have seen that men have this pride and arrogance. They, they know things. And then when you confront them with truth from God's word, they go, oh, well, and then I find out that they are ignorant of it. Ignorance is they don't know. So who is coming to the decision-making table based upon ignorance and who's coming based upon knowledge. I know what you hold because you throw it down my throat, but you've never heard the other side. When we were, I was traveling back from one of the trips to Haiti, and I've told the story before to you of the student geologist sitting beside me going to New Mexico Tech and going through this, and, and he says, oh, we just laugh at you guys, at you creationists. I was like, really? What do we believe? I don't know, but we laugh at you in class. I said, did they ever tell you what our position is? No, we just laugh at you at class. I said, you laugh from a point of ignorance, and you think I'm the ignoramus. But I know what you believe, and I can tell you all about your strata and all of that. I said, you have no concept of what I believe, so who's the smarter one here? You or me. Boy, who's... That was when the stewardess started coming by. Is everything okay here? Not because I raised my voice, because he did. He was ashamed and embarrassed that he didn't know what I believed. And I just took him through one or two things, and he was shattered his whole concept of the world. Because he only knew what he is taught. Most of your medical doctors only know what they were taught. Most of, they only know what they were taught. Unless we come and say, I want to know the truth. So we come and we say, well, I want to be judged by something greater than the knowledge of men. Because they're going to point and say, that's strange, that's odd. You don't comply, and therefore you don't deserve life. And they're going to judge us. But we know that their authority doesn't extend beyond this age, this place, this flesh. And that there is a judge above them, the judge of judges. And that while we might be wrongly judged by them as the evil ones, when we know that we are walking in the righteousness of the truth of God's word, then we know that we have an appeal. And that appeal's coming. There's another judgment coming. And this Peter References in verse 5, they, that is those who are judging you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so while they judge this flesh and they try to make me miserable, I recognize that they, their authority of judgeship is, is, is minuscule. And I have an appeal that goes directly to the supreme judge of all the earth, and the fascinating thing is, by overturning the other judges, they are simply saying the other judges were wrong. And in God's courtroom, being wrong has eternal consequences. 
You see, he is the judge of the living and the dead. Those who are living in the spirit and those who are dead in the spirit. Including particularly those that judged us. They who are judging you, saying you're strange, you don't deserve to live in this world, will go into the next and find out that God will give them that same judgment and say, you will be having eternal death. That is my judgment on you. And these will go into eternal life. And we find that this is the declaration of God faithfully throughout Scripture as we here see that God is that determining factor. That he will do this fairly, that he, that he is not... <laughs> Impart, that he's not a partial judge, but he is impartially going to apply the truth to the scenario and recognize that you are going to be judged by God. Now, I'm not going to sit there and say they are going to be judged by God only because he's not just the judge of the dead, he is also the judge of the living. So we know from Corinthians that we have a judgment seat of Christ that we need to also be attentive to, that there is an accounting that we must make to God, even as believers. And I think that's what the Bible refers to, those that enter into heaven um, singed. That means you barely made it there, and you get there in the judgment seat of Christ, and you have nothing because everything you chased after in this life is wood, hay, and stubble and is burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. And you enter into eternal existence naked. Well, you get clothed with one white outfit. You get dressed in white. That's the righteousness of Christ. But you're empty-handed. So you're not naked. You're empty-handed. What a sad state of affairs to grab after and try to fill your hands with everything of this flesh and then get to heaven and realize that it's all burnt up. It's of no value there at all. And now you have nothing. You're here, but you have nothing. What? Yes, because you chased after the will of men instead of the will of God. Paul, in the book of Philippians, tells the Philippians in their support of him that you have spent of this world to invest in an account in the next world. That you have a heavenly bank account, if you will, a heavenly depository where you are putting value with activity and exercises, with 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 the stewardship that you're doing here in this world that we can uh, fill our arms with things in the next innate to enable us to worship Christ. Uh, some pastors of the Bible talk about crowns, receiving crowns of, of levels of authority and, and uh, place that we will all submit to Jesus Christ without casting our crowns before him. The crown of life being one of them and other crowns that we have seen described in Scripture. But the whole idea is that we come filled. Oh, that we would chase after the will of God, pursue it with all of our being, and not worry about these lesser judges who sit there and say, you're strange, you don't deserve to live. And the worst they can do is to put us to death, which is what they want to do. That's the worst they can do. 
But we know we have a higher judge. And we have to, he's our judge as well as their judge. We are all going to appear. We of Christ are going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. They are going to be at the great white throne judgment. Two very different judgments. One is about reward. The other one is about life and death. And so Peter says, listen, they're going to have to give an account to him who's ready to judge. We're going to give an account, but so are they. And so that appeal goes on, and and here now this judge says, you are not one of my own. You're going to go off into eternal death. And there's no hope. There's no appeal process to that judge because he's the highest judge of all creation. So who do you want to be concerned about being your judge in your decision-making for life? Are you concerned about men judging you or are you concerned about God judging you? And I can't think of a better Lord's Day for this message than maybe today based upon the last 12 or 14 hours. How will God judge the decisions we're making? Are you willing to be judged according to men in the flesh so that you can live according to God in the Spirit? Are you willing to let them go ahead and put you to death? Go ahead. Do your worst. Speak evil of me. And I've had it. I've had that happen. I've had people speak evil of me for doing what was right. Some who call themselves by Christ's name. That I'm pretty sure not only don't think I should be in the ministry, but don't think I should be alive. They will speak evil. But God is my judge, my own family members. I've had that experience. To have them speak evil and I'm the bad guy. But God is the judge I'm worried about. I don't care what my family thinks because they're not the final judge. I don't care really what if my neighbors, I don't agree with my neighbors and they say, oh, I don't like that guy because he's so good. Oh, everything's got to be about God. He always wants to do what's right. No, I don't care about that. I don't really concerned about that because God is my judge that I'm worried about. I'm concerned because he is the one. I walk into that courtroom at the great at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm concerned about well, how Christ will look upon the activities and the decisions that I've made and say, why didn't you do more for me when I did so much for you, which you've been seeing every week for like eight weeks? I did it all for you. Why couldn't you do a little bit for me? If you love me, Keep my commandments. My commandments are not grievous. Do not say you love me and don't keep my commandments. Well, we would understand that this is the judge that should consume our thinking. That this is what we should be completely concerned about. That I'm not worried about offending all these people with all these earthly concerns. I'm I'm afraid of offending the God who has saved me. I do not want to do anything to offend him. He is my judge. 
Now, that doesn't let me off the hook of, of living as a responsible citizen of, of this earth. If anything, it holds me to a higher standard. But it's recognizing that there are going to be occasions, and there have been occasions in history, and Peter's going to be a victim of those occasions, when men will say, you don't deserve to live because you are so strange and you won't agree with the consensus of men. And we will gladly stand up and say, do your worst, and then I will appeal this case to the judge of judges of all the earth. And I will glorify his name. Even if they want to torture me first, I will glorify his name. Peter did that. And many, many others besides. Are we ready to do that? Who's your judge? I guarantee you that if you want to be judged by men, you will not be judged fairly. And of all the things that might be wrong with our country right now, there is one thing that overrides them all, and that is that our judicial system is broken. Because there's no fairness in it. There's no truth in it. It is compromised. So you can sue up the wazoo and you're not going to get a righteous outcome. We're seeing that in these last 14 months or so, for sure. It has been the case for much longer than that. But I assure you, that is not the case in heaven's courtroom. That courtroom is never compromised. The standard is never changed, lowered, or tarnished in any way. This is why we preach the gospel. It's because these men who call us strange are headed to face the judge at the great white throne and they will have no hope. So we give them the good news that they can stand before the judge of all the earth and claim Christ's name and enter into eternal life. That is what we Invite. And so we know there might be a cost here, but that there is a righteous judge who know who's not blind. But knows the good from the evil. I want to jump forward because like I said this chapter isn't done talking about God as judge even though we are going to be moving into another section. Uh, Peter is going to keep cycling back. Let's just move forward uh, a few verses to verse uh, let's go to verse 16. If, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter. And then the next verse is, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
want you to notice that in Peter's time frame, he understood that the judgment of God starts with the people of God. This is where it begins. We think it begins with the decision of heaven and hell, the great white throne, but that's not true. The judgment seat of Christ is first. It precedes that judgment of the great white throne. That might seem odd to you, uh, but both Corinthians and Revelations make that pretty clear that the believers will be in heaven long before that. The judgments, if you're at the great white throne, you're, you're doomed. You're done. But not only in terms of eternal state, in terms of earthly judgment, it begins in the house of God. This is where it should concern you. It should not concern you what the world thinks, but maybe it should concern you a little bit more about what the people who are engaging with God's word think, who are following after God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, that, that are the representatives of God before us, and would recognize in the judgment. Now, I'm not putting myself in as anyone's judge. I am saying that uh, I'm a lesser judge too. I am not the judge of the, all the earth either. Aren't you glad? <laughs> I, wouldn't ha- I don't have the patience God has. I would just be, it's done. But let us understand the judgment of God begins in the church, the house of God. And again, Paul mirrors this in Corinthians when he says, listen, there's a reason that things are going on in your church, that people are, are sickly and dying. It's because of the disregard you have for the decorum you should have in the midst of partaking of the Lord's table and your love feast and, and all these things that there's judgment there. And we go to the book of Acts and we find out what was it that brought everybody, got everyone's attention. Well, certainly in Acts chapter 2 is that everybody was sharing and taking care of everyone. We talked about it Wednesday night with the kids uh, on Wednesday on World Life Night about all of the activity of the church and they were, they were, viewed positively by the people, but that's not what really got everyone's attention. What really got everyone's attention was when God comes down and says, you don't lie to me. And he strikes a man and his wife dead for just misrepresenting their giving. Misrepresent your giving. Boom. Don't lie to me. And everyone's like, ooh, do we really want to be a part of that group. They're under that kind of authority. Yeah. Judgment begins in the house of God. We're going to be visiting that, obviously, more later on, but I want to just talk about that, that when when verse 6 talks about judging the living and the dead, that the living is first. The church, the house of God is first that we have responsibility because we know the truth. We have access to God's word. We are surrounded by people who are going to challenge us and encourage us to be obedient to this word, that we are judged first. We have a higher standard in that sense, in that we knew the truth, we know the truth, and that God will say, well, um, you're going to be in heaven, but are you going to be empty-handed? Are you going to be miserable on earth while you disobey my directives, even for your life on earth? Matters. 
So it begins in the house of God, and then it's laid onto. We often ask God to judge the world. And, and boy, I've been praying that a lot, it seems like, lately. You know, don't forget this, Lord. Don't forget this, Lord. Don't forget what they're doing over here, Lord. Don't forget what they're doing over there, Lord. Don't forget all the evil they're perpetrating against your people and against your creation. Do not forget, Lord, when it comes time to judge these things. And it's easy to pray those prayers, but then to forget <laughs> judgment of God begins in the house of the Lord. And then our prayers are very different. Usually it's, Lord, please forget. Please forget that I wasn't faithful. Please, please forget that I wasn't diligent, that I wasn't a good steward. Please forget all those things. Oh, that we would recognize the judge of all the earth will judge righteously. He will not forget. And I like, uh, we have passages in our Bible that are very awkward for the authors. Where they start rehearsing their life for Christ. Um, Probably the most noteworthy is Paul. Where he actually says, I'm talking as a fool because you shouldn't do, I want to rehearse for you what my life has been since I met Christ. I used to be all of this. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I had all this going for us, but that was all garbage. I count that as dung, he says, as manure, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. And and I've gone through shipwrecks. I've been beaten. I've had this. He goes through all these things, and he says, these are the things I'm going to glory in. I'm not going to glory in all this junk of this world. I'm glorying in my service before God. And yes, that even means getting beat up, imprisoned, shipwrecked, all that. He says, that's what I'm going to recount. Because that's what I want God to remember. I'm going to ask God, please consider, remember, that I wanted to, I served you faithfully. I, I never was ashamed of your name and just became quiet instead of speaking the truth. I I confessed you before men and now I ask you to confess me before the Father. Because this is the measure of the judgment of God on the house of God. And And as equally as we might look at the necessity of God's judgment on the world and on wickedness of men and what they are perpetrating uh, against his people and his creation. Uh, similarly, we should be concerned about, well, maybe we're not deserving of his blessing. And that can change. I can change this. I can't change the world. I can preach the gospel to them and they can choose to go a different path, but, but I, I can change me. I can determine in my heart that I'm going to serve the Lord with gladness and, and with all that I have and all that I am, and regardless of the price. I will take up my cross and follow him, which is Peter's words in the next book. And what moves that is understanding that God's judgment begins in the house of God, that he is the judge of the living, that he is the supreme judge, and that I'm no longer concerned with whether other people like me. I'm not worried about offending other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I expect 
to offend other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not worried about offending other people with a righteous walk before God that's obedient to his word. I expect to offend them. And I'm prepared for the aftermath of that. I'm prepared for them to point the finger and say, you're weird. I'm, ex- I'm prepared for the nasty talk. He's evil. And this is how it comes off. You're not loving. You don't care about keeping everyone else healthy. I've had someone, you want me dead. You really think I want you dead? But that's been said to me out loud. They're speaking evil. And the next step is a very obvious one. You don't deserve to live. You're the enemy of humanity. We endure that. Gladly. Because we expect it. We expect them to be offended by someone walking by faith and not by sight. Walking by the truth and not the wisdom of men. Remember, the scripture says, it's foolishness. The world thinks the wisdom of God is foolishness. and In fact, the wisdom of men is foolishness. They're going to call you the fool when you're following the wisdom of God. But a judgment is coming. And they aren't the judge you should be worrying about. Don't focus on them. Go to the appeal court. Go to the highest court. Be concerned about the highest court that is not compromised at all, and it never can be. Are you thinking about God as your judge? It begins in the house of the Lord. And if we start walking a walk as though God is our judge, and that we're going to have to face him at the end of the day, then the impact on the world, yes, you will offend them, and they will judge you for that, but you know the judge that judges them. And they don't know him yet. And so we introduce him to them. Not with any expectation that they will follow after him. They might still slaughter you, uh, crucify you. They might still torture you, make your life miserable, ostracize you. But the judge of all the earth will make it right. He will Remember, he'll remember their evil and he'll remember your righteousness. He will not fail as a righteous judge. And that drives Christian living. That drives us to do the will of God instead of the will of our flesh or the will of men. Is that there is an accounting And so let them judge us. We don't acknowledge that it has any value beyond this world. I am ready to be judged by God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you so much for your promises in Christ Jesus. Lord, we come before you as a people knowing that if your judgment came upon us, that we would be in a fearful condition. 
So we ask for your grace and your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your cleansing. And we not only ask for that cleansing, but we want your help and pray you might find us the spirit that wants to turn, to change our minds, to repent. Lord, we are sorry that we have focus so much on what the world thinks and what the world says and have ignored and been ignorant, chosen to be ignorant of your scriptures, chosen not to regard them in our life, chosen to ignore that you are the judge of all the earth. Lord, help us to live differently. Lord, we also see from your word that we are first in line, in your judgment. That you have promised us life, and for this we rejoice, and we marvel at that, and we look forward to it with great anticipation. But Lord, we also know that you desire us to enter into our eternal state with full hearts, full arms, with an accounts that have a great positive balance. This is your desire for us, Lord, for our good. Help us to trust you as our judge, not just our deliverer. And Lord, we do pray for the world. We see this scenario that you've described in Peter's letter playing out before us as many other generations have seen but on a scale that they have not. And Lord, we see your coming is really the only solution. Lord, our prayer is that your people might stand fast. That fear might not, of men might not drive our decision-making, but fear of you as our judge would be our chief concern. That the gospel might go forth from us not only by our message of our lips, but by the evidence of our life. Lord, help us to be the ones that are fingered for being strange that are spoken evil of, that are judged by men as not worthy of life, that we might have life in your court and life abundant. Again, to your honor, praise and glory. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.